Ready for a career in behavioral health? Earn your online degree at Herzing University. Choose from health and human services, psychology, or social work programs. Gain the skills to work, coordinate, and manage nonprofits. Secure a bachelor's in psychology to study mental health or advance your social work career through our online Masters of Social Work. Let us help you become a social change agent. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Text HEALTH to 85109. That's HEALTH to 85109. Or visit herzing.edu. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. The Finding Holy Podcast is where Ashley Hales sits down with authors, pastors, activists, and artists to help you connect the dots between the things that really matter and your everyday holy life. And you'll get to hear everyone's laundry routines. To listen to the Finding Holy Podcast, go to aahales.com slash podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, this is Joel here at the top of the show. Uh, We wanted to update our listeners and let them know that we are about to take a short break. But don't worry, we are going to be back in October. Uh, This season of of episodes, as we come to look at it, has been a lot of fun. Originally, we only planned to do 10 episodes. That's what we originally had written and what we originally recorded, but we saw so much growth uh, that we decided, hey, let's let's keep going, and we upped that to 20 episodes, which is where we're at now. Um, but we are going to take a little bit of time to kind of uh, rethink things, to kind of prepare for season two. Uh, it does take a lot of work, a lot of uh, research and time. Uh, all of our wonderful volunteers that record these sermons and bring them in does take a little bit of time. Um, so we are going to focus on these improvements to come, and we will be back in October. We are excited to leave you with Bonhoeffer, uh, another one of his sermons here. Dustin did a fantastic job with it, and we're excited to to have that as a good finale, a good send-off for our short break here. Uh, If you like what you hear, you might be a little bit newer here. We do have a catalog of of 20 episodes now, so please go scroll through that feed and see if there's anyone else that kind of reaches out to you, or maybe there's someone that you don't recognize that you want to hear more about. Please uh, don't hesitate to listen to some previous sermons, uh, and or tell a friend. And this is Troy. Yeah, if you're, we're taking a break here for a short bit, but one thing that can help us will be a big uh, support to us is if you would like to do a sermon, if you're listening to these and you're thinking it would be a lot of fun to be a part of what Revive Thoughts is doing, bringing these old sermons, some of which have never ever touched audio in hundreds of years back to life for the first time, please shoot us an email at revivethoughts at gmail.com or find a way to communicate and contact us. We would be happy to have you. We have already had listeners 
contact the show and get sermons and get episodes going. We have had people come from all different places who have made episodes for us. Honestly, one of the fun parts of making the show is seeing the way that God brings a sermon or brings a speaker into it and just the right person at the right time. So if that is something you would like to be a part of, send us an email, revivethoughts at gmail.com. And it's a very simple, we've had somebody say that it was a very painless process. So we hope that it can be that way for you as well. All right, now on with the show. This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revive Thoughts. See poor Lazarus in his full frightening misery, and behind him Christ, who invited him to his table and calls him blessed. Every episode we bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they delivered. Today's sermon is titled Lazarus and the Rich Man. It was preached by Dietrich Bonhoeffer on May 29th, 1932 in Berlin. Joel, I think... If there is one story in the Bible that I don't like to listen to, there's one portion of scripture that I go, I hear that and it just, I don't know if it convicts me or just, it's hard to wrestle with. Uh, One of the top ones at least would be Luke 16 and the story of Lazarus and the rich man. Here is this guy, he, he feels no sympathy for this starving beggar outside of his house. He just treats him badly and In that part of the story, I'm kind of like, you know, he deserves what's coming to him. But when they both die, you know, the rich man is sent one direction, Lazarus is in the other, and the rich man is so miserable, he's just wanting a drop of water to quench his thirst, just something. And no, the answer is no, you will never get that drop of water. You will never get to quench that thirst. And then he goes, well, could you just send Lazarus to tell my brothers? And the answer is no. He knows basically that they're going to end up in the same place as him. And that story is just hard to hear. I just, I, again, I don't have a lot of sympathy for the rich person, but at the same time, it is, there's no, there's no pleasantness in that story. That story is just a brutal one. And in this sermon, Dietrich Bonhoeffer will give us uh, even more layers and more perspective to this whole story, I think, as we hear it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German born in 1906, and he was a passionate believer in a time that was very unstable, and he was executed by the Nazis in 1945, less than a month before Germany was going to surrender to the Allies during World War II. Uh, He had the opportunity to leave Germany twice, and on both occasions he came back because he felt a heartfelt desire to, to serve his church and to help the Church of Germany while the country was under Hitler's control. We have kind of a more in-depth look at this time and this aspect of Bonhoeffer's life uh, in a previous episode titled uh, Overcoming Fear. Joel, that's right. And since this episode is all about Lazarus and the rich man, I think we should actually kind of focus more on the finances and the economies of that era when Bonhoeffer is preaching because he's preaching in an era when finance, the, the economies are kind of wild. They're kind of going crazy. He's preaching this in 1932. And this is, I mean, this is in the heart, just the dead middle of the Great Depression. And the Great Depression, which started officially, people kind of put it down to 1929 when the stock market crashed. And it just knocked out the world's economy. 
People were standing in soup lines. They could barely afford to eat. And the U.S. in 1932, the same year, FDR gets elected, promising a chicken in every pot. And and I I kind of sometimes say these things, and I you know they're just historical facts to me. But I try to remember, you know, imagining our elections and thinking, okay, we're not talking about immigration, or we're not talking about tax policy or war, but we're just you know voting for the guy. Well, he's promising me chicken for dinner. And when I put myself in those shoes, I gotta remember this is a very different world, and economically things are going really bad. Yeah, I mean, as bad as the Great Depression was in America, in in many ways it was kind of worse in Germany. In in some ways, Germany had a, a very booming economy right before the Great Depression, but it was coming from loans and money that was being received from America. And when the stock markets in America crash. It really affected the system in Germany as well, and Germans' markets also collapsed. And by 1931, several banks in Austria and Germany had completely fallen apart as the Americans who needed their investments back withdrew them and left Germany with nothing essentially. And to make it even worse, America was one of the number one customers of German goods, and that had stopped because the Americans didn't have any money to buy those goods anymore. And these are just some of the things that caused, you know, the Great Depression to be especially bad in Germany. There are many things that include the Treaty of Versailles. I, there's just a lot that went wrong. And by 1933, just a few months after this sermon is preached, six million people are unemployed in Germany, and thousands of children would end up starving because they just could not get food. There was no money for it. Industrial workers、um, in Germany were at one time the best paid in all of Europe, and now they would have to wait almost a year or so between jobs. And over half the kids that went to university would come out. It was sixty percent would come out, and they would not have a job waiting for them after university. They could not get paid,、uh, even with a degree. We could go on and on and on about just how bad this would be, but just trying to imagine putting yourself in their shoes and just、um, what would the effect on our culture? What would the effect on people's?、Uh, what would they be thinking about church and God and just their own safety when they're looking around them and seeing a world like this? Now we aren't excusing the people's actions、uh, by any means, but、uh, in in many ways we can see how the Great Depression kind of helped lead to the rise of of the Nazis there in that time, as people felt betrayed by banks and businesses, and people already didn't trust society much after World War One. The idea of a fascistic nation in a time of fear started to appeal to a lot of people there. When we hear the word Nazis, I mean, we automatically remember the concentration camps. We're thinking of Hitler and the propaganda and everything like that. But this is back in 1932, and even though people, again, if you read into their books and you research them, you know who they were and what they were supporting. But if you were going to their rallies, what you were hearing from the Nazis were, "We can fix the depression. We'll bring money back to Germany. We're going to restore Germany's place in the world, and we're going to help end the suffering that everyone is going through." And so people started electing them in droves because they were really hoping that they could help end the Great Depression. Th- these are the people that Bonhoeffer is preaching to、uh, on this day, and he, when he's talking about rich men and poor men, many of these people. Probably didn't feel like they were rich anymore. At least, maybe they had money at one point. But you know, this, on the other hand, this was also preached in Berlin. It was the capital, so there was most definitely at least some wealthy people there in the capital. And I would have loved to see the audience. I would have loved to seen the people.、Uh, maybe some felt like Lazarus on that day, and maybe some felt like the rich men. But Bonhoeffer explains in the sermon that you know what? It doesn't really matter if you're Lazarus. 
or the rich man, both of them die and both of them are brought to God and both of them are separated based on what they, how they lived and what they were doing in this life. And so at the end of the day, whether you are the rich man, the Lazarus, you need to turn your affection to Christ, turn how you live over to him and make sure that you are focused on him so that when that death that comes to the rich and the poor alike, you will be standing in the good grace of the creator. One cannot understand and preach the gospel realistically. A real evangelical sermon must be like holding a pretty red apple in front of a child or a glass of cool water in front of a thirsty person and then asking, do you want it? We should be able to talk about matters of our faith in such a way that the hands reach out for it faster than we can fill them. And people should run and not be able to rest when the gospel is talked about. As long ago, the sick ran to Christ to be healed when he was going around healing. But Christ, too, healed more than he converted. That is really no stock phrase. And shouldn't it be that way wherever the good news of God is spoken of? But it just isn't that way, and we all know that. At the same time... One shouldn't content oneself with this state of affairs. Rather, there can be basically just one thing that one repeatedly asks oneself anew why this is so. And here is one, admittedly only one, of the reasons that we simply hesitate to accept that the gospel is as realistic, as close to life as it is. We have moralized the gospel. That is, we have enlightened it, changed it, and take our gospel of the rich man and the poor Lazarus. It has become common practice to see the whole meaning of the story that the rich should help the poor. That is, it's turned into a story illustrating a moral. But this particular story especially if one allows themselves to be affected by its original meaning, is something very different from that, namely a very real proclamation of the good news itself, admittedly so realistic, so powerfully worded that we don't even take it seriously anymore. Let us imagine how a crowd of the sick the poor, the miserable, the poor Lazaruses gathered around Christ and then he began to tell them a story of the poor leopardess Lazarus whom even the dogs were torturing at the doorstep of the rich man. And then the story took a turn with the words, the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. Lazarus received evil things in his life, but now he is comforted here. And perhaps shouts of joy and hope pass through the crowd. That was the good news. That was the cool water they reached for greedily. That was the love of God itself, which spoke in this way to the poor and the suffering. You outcasts. You disadvantaged, you poor and sick, you who are looked down upon shall be comforted. 
You have much suffering in the world, but in a short while, eternal joy and eternal comfort shall come over you. Look at poor Lazarus, how he's lying scorned before the rich man's doorstep. And then look at how he receives God's consolation with Abraham. Blessed are you, you poor, for the kingdom of God is yours. Blessed are you who are hungry here below, for you shall be filled. Blessed are you who weep here, for you will laugh. Rejoice and leap for joy, for your reward is great in heaven. Those are the Beatitudes in Luke. Nothing is said here about the poor in spirit. Nothing about hunger for righteousness. But blessed are you poor, you hungry, you who are weeping as we know you in the world. Blessed are you Lazaruses of all ages for you shall be comforted in the bosom of Abraham. Blessed are you outcasts and outlaws, you victims of society, you men and women without work, you broken down and ruined, you lonely and abandoned, rape victims and those who suffer injustice, you who suffer in body and soul. Blessed are you for God's joy will come over you and will be over your head forever. That is the gospel, the good news of the dawning of the new world, which is God's world and God's order. The deaf hear, the blind see, the lame walk, and the gospel is preached to the poor. And before we interrupt ourselves to ask questions here, let us hear the other side, the terrible other side. There's a rich man who's dressed in purple and fine linen. And about him it says, the rich man also died and was buried. That already sounds very harsh. And now in hell he must suffer the torment of eternal thirst because he was full and satisfied on earth. He has to see poor Lazarus in the bosom of Abraham and beg that Lazarus quench his thirst only for a moment. But even that can't be. Child, remember that during your lifetime you received your good things. And behind this we hear the words, Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you who dress in purple and live happily in luxury, for you shall suffer eternal thirst. Blessed poor, outcast, leopardous Lazarus, yesterday and today, for you have a God. And woe to you who live happily in luxury and are respected yesterday and today. That is the most amazingly preached good news of God for the poor. But now we must listen to quite a few shocked objections before we continue. There are always those in our midst who know better than the New Testament itself what the New Testament may and may not say. It couldn't be about that. If something in the New Testament really sounds as rough as what we just said, you have to take it and spiritualize it. 
We call that sublimating, that is refining, elevating, spiritualizing, moralizing. It's not just simply the physically poor who are blessed and the physically rich who would be damned, but the main thing is always what a person's attitude is towards his poverty and towards his wealth. The external aspect doesn't matter at all, but rather the attitude matters. Rich in God or poor in God. You see, the most dangerous thing about this criticism is that it contains some truth. But basically, it is intended only to provide us with an excuse. It is so terribly easy to back away from all the so-called external conditions and focus on the attitude. Rich on the outside, but being poor on one's so-called attitude. It is so terribly easy to say that it is vulgar to understand the gospel as if it were about outward poverty and riches while it really depends not on that but solely on the inner aspect. Now I ask you, where in the story of the poor Lazarus does it say anything about his inner life? Who tells us that he was a man who within himself had the right attitude towards his poverty? Just the opposite. He may have been quite a pushy poor man since he lay down in front of the rich man's doorstep and didn't go away. And who tells us anything about the soul of the rich man? That's precisely the frightening thing about this story. There's no moralizing here at all, but simply talk of poor and rich and of the promise and the great threat given to the one and the other. Here these external conditions are obviously not treated as external conditions, but are taken unbelievably seriously. Why did Christ heal the sick and the suffering if he didn't consider such external conditions important? Why is the kingdom of God equated with the deaf hear and the blind see? And where do we get the incredible presumption that to spiritualize these things that Christ saw and did very concretely? And there was no lack of of this hatred precisely because people took the gospel to be as honest as it was. The hatred comes from two different sides. What does a gospel that was brought to the weaklings, the common people, the poor, and the sick have to do with us? We are men and women, healthy and strong. We disdain the mass of Lazaruses. We disdain the gospel of the poor. It undermines our pride, our race, our strength. We are rich, but with pride. That is certainly honestly said, but is also said incredibly carelessly and at the same time so full of illusions. It is so easy to disdain the masses of Lazaruses. But if just one of these would really meet you face to face, the unemployed Lazarus, Lazarus the accident victim, Lazarus whose ruin you caused, your own begging child as Lazarus, the helpless and desperate mother, Lazarus who has become a criminal, the godless Lazarus, can you go up to him or her and say, I disdain you, Lazarus. I scoff at the good news that makes you glad. 
Can you really do that? And if you can't do that, why then do you act as if there were anything great at all to be able to do that? But also, couldn't it possibly already be a mockery in of itself to comfort those who live in suffering and misery with the prospect of a better future in another world? Doesn't it almost sound as if one is trying to keep these unfortunates from rebelling here against their fate? As if one is calling them blessed just to say that they will stay quiet as they are now and not bother the others? Isn't it downright cynical to talk about consolation in heaven because one does not want to give consolation on earth? Is this gospel for the poor, not basically the deception and dumbing down of the people? Does it not show that one does not take the suffering at all seriously but hides cynically behind pious phrases? Countless times it's happened this way. Who would deny it? right up to our present time, and millions have become estranged from the gospel for this reason. But a look at the gospel shows us what is different here. Jesus calls the poor blessed, but he does heal them too, already here. Yes, the kingdom of God is at hand for the blind see and the lame walk. He takes suffering so seriously that in a moment he must destroy it. Where Christ is, the power of demons must be broken. That is why he heals. That is why he says to his disciples, If you believe in me, you will do greater works than I. The acts of healing are like heat lightning, like flashes of lightning from the new world. But now the good news becomes all the more powerful. Blessed are you who weep, for you will laugh. Blessed are you who are hungry, for you will be filled. No cynical consolation, but the one great hope, the new world, the good news, the merciful God, Lazarus in the bosom of Abraham, the poor and the outcasts with God. Yes, that indeed, this, this may sound terribly naive, but if it were really true, if it is true, is it still naive then? Is it still unspiritual then? Don't we then especially have to open our ears and hear and hear again about the unheard of event that Lazarus yesterday and today is carried by the angels to be in the bosom of Abraham? And that the well-satisfied man, the full man who lives happily in luxury, the rich man must suffer eternal thirst? Up until now, we have spoken of these two as if they actually had nothing to do with each other, and that is obviously not the case. Lazarus lies in front of the rich man's doorstep, and it is the poverty of Lazarus that makes the rich man rich, just as it is the wealth of the other man makes Lazarus poor. It doesn't say that the rich man nor what the poor man had done or even should have done, but the only common event that affects them equally is their death. That is the unusual light in which both of these men are shown here. They both must die. And another life awaits both of them. 
And this fact binds them closer together than any moral law that a rich man should help a poor man. They basically already belong together in the common fate that awaits both of them. In death, the rich man is no longer rich and the poor man is no longer poor. They are there one in the same. And after death, something new begins over which all the powers of the world of death have no more control. But this is obviously what the rich man did not see, that his whole world is a world of death and must pass away and is subject to God, that for that reason Lazarus has something to do with him because they both must die and will live in another world because they are brothers in death and in judgment. He did not see that behind him and behind Lazarus there stand infinities, eternities, silent, invisible, hidden under his purple garments and the naked body of Lazarus, but they are there and they are waiting to become reality. And the conversation between the thirsting man and Abraham leaves no doubt as to the seriousness of what is meant here by eternity. But now, in principle, there will also be no more revelation of this eternity in the world. As the rich man requests for his brothers, other than what was given in Moses and the prophets, today we would say given in the preaching of the church, in their world of death, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. The words about God's eternal commandment and about the weakness and the suffering of human being who must die, about God's mercy to the humble and judgment on the strong, the words about the cross of Christ for the salvation of the poor and lost, of the curse on the satisfied and the righteous. Let them hear these and remember that they all live with Lazarus in the same world of death. And if they do not hear them, they will also not hear. Even if someone were to rise from the dead, even at this most visible conquest of their world of death, they will not be afraid and not become wise. They will refuse to accept it. They will not know that the Lazarus before their door is an eternal Lazarus. And they will pass by the eternity that meets them in Lazarus. And now the final questions. Who is Lazarus? Who is the rich man? And finally, what should the rich man do? Who is Lazarus? You know it yourself. Your poor brother or sister who cannot cope with life's outward or spiritual aspects, often foolish, often impudent, often pushy, often godless, but yet endlessly needy, and whether knowing it or not, suffering who craves the crumbs from under your table. You may think with a little self-pity that you yourself are Lazarus, and God alone knows if you are, but always keep asking if you are not perhaps, after all, the rich man. Who is Lazarus? Always the other one the crucified Christ himself who meets you in the form of a thousand people you would look down upon. Yes, he is the eternal Lazarus himself. And we must ask again, who is Lazarus? And here at the end, in all humility, the last possibility must be considered. 
at the limits of all human and divine possibilities, we are all Lazarus before God. The rich man, too, is Lazarus. He is the poor leper before God. And only when we know that we are all Lazarus, because we all live through the mercy of God, do we see Lazarus in our neighbor. Who is the rich man? Our story doesn't answer this question. Certainly, We are are not rich. Certainly we are not full and satisfied. We do not live happily in luxury. Really? Not? Do you mean that seriously? Even when you meet Lazarus? Or does he not meet you? Are we really not the rich man? Another story gives us an answer to this question. The story of the rich young man who was very devout and very righteous but was sad when he was told to leave his possessions and went away. That is the rich man. What about us? And now what should the rich man do? The answer to this question can be found in the story of the Good Samaritan. In our story, there's only this. The rich man should see that death is standing behind him and Lazarus, and that behind Lazarus is God himself, and Christ is standing with the eternal good news. We should see, see poor Lazarus in his full frightening misery, and behind him Christ, who invited him to his table and calls him blessed. Let us see you, poor Lazarus. Let us see you, Christ, in poor Lazarus. Oh, that we might be able to see. Amen. He talks about how I just love how he takes the story of Lazarus and the rich man. Again, this story, one of these things I don't honestly like to think about and listen to. Hell is not a subject we all hope to hear at church, even though we need to hear it. We don't like to think about it. But he basically goes, we should all be Lazarus before God. We all need to be beggars going to God and, you know, just begging him for our our lives, begging him for every need that we have, just really going to him. He is the only place we can get any kind of sustenance in this life. He is, you know, the good God. So our our position before God should be, you know, a beggar, you know, on his hands and knees. But we should look at our lives as others as the rich man, we have something that they need, the gospel. And it doesn't really matter how poor or rich you are on this earth. If you have the gospel, if you know the Lord and have the Holy Spirit living in your life, you are rich and you need to be sharing what you have from your table, giving the good news to others. That perspective just really wowed me. I really enjoyed hearing that. And it was a good reminder that, you know, these were people during the Great Depression. They may have felt really poor. They may have felt really rich. I don't know what they felt. But at the end of the day, if you know Jesus Christ, you are rich and you have a responsibility to share that. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revive Thoughts. Today's episode was narrated by Dustin Garrett. 
All of the transcripts for our Revive Thoughts episode can be found on our website at revivethoughts.com. And as a reminder, this is our last episode before we go on a break. If you are interested in doing an episode of Revive Thoughts with us, feel free to contact us at revivethoughts.gmail.com and we would be happy to hear from you. We also love any feedback that we get on this show. We love seeing your messages online. We love seeing the emails that come in. It is always really encouraging to Joel and I to hear from you guys. And if you would like to drop us a line or send us a message or retweet us, we read them all and we really do appreciate them. This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revive Thoughts. I hope you enjoyed that podcast, and if you did, I'd like to also invite you over to the Finding Holy podcast, where Ashley Hales sits down with authors, pastors, activists, and artists to help you connect the dots between things that really matter in issues of faith and your everyday holy life. You'll even get to hear about the laundry routines. Go to aahales.com slash podcast or listen to the Finding Holy podcast wherever you choose to listen to your shows.